You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Frank Pasquale, who is a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and also the author of New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. And also, a couple years back, this book, The Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information. And I was just saying right before we started that I couldn't believe that this book came out, I guess, 2015, because it's so timely and so relevant to this day. A lot of this stuff doesn't age well, and this one definitely has maintained its relevance. So thank you, first of all, Frank, for joining me. Great to be here, Greg. Thank you. Let's just jump right in. When you said the new laws of robotics, it made me think of, remember, Isaac Asimov's laws. And of course, you you referenced them and you pointed out how problematic it is. So Isaac Asimov said the first rule for a robot is, is not to harm people. It sounds pretty simple, but then once you start Thinking about those classic cases like, hey, well, you know, you run down one person or two people, you know, you realize that you know, it's pretty hard to implement. So you introduce a whole different set of laws, which are, as a lawyer, these are actually close to being the inspiration for a series of actual laws. And you talk about the benefits that could come from these laws and, of course, the costs of these laws. And I think that the first one is that we should think of AI as something that's going to complement human labor and not necessarily be seen as a substitute. And I like this idea because it sort of cuts through the debate that everyone's having where AI is coming for your job. And, and that discourse assumes that a job is this coherent thing and it's going to be either a human or a robot. And you dig in and kind of break things down a little more subtly. Maybe we could jump into that and talk about what do you mean by complement? Is this sort of the idea of augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence? It is. I'm so glad you brought up the augmented intelligence angle right away because on some level, a lot of folks who have been critics of artificial intelligence or concerned about artificial intelligence, we really come from a longer, I'd say, philosophical, social scientific lineage that goes back to people that said at the very beginning, is AI really the goal? Do we want AI or do we want IA? Do we want augmented intelligence or intelligence augmentation is IA? And I think that this is a really good question. And to me, the answer is, what are the jobs that we really want to preserve? And to the extent we want to preserve those jobs, how can we figure out both how to make them better jobs, both in terms of better serving society and better for the people in them? And often the answer is, use technology there, but complement the person in the role to increase the value of their labor. Right. Don't think about it in terms of like, let's just make everything as cheap as possible and get rid of all the folks who are working in it and move them along, Mm -hmm. you know, make them obsolete and give them a universal basic income. The intelligence augmentation view would say there's a lot of very essentially human roles in today's economy. And let's really hold them up and bring in tech to help them. I give lots of examples of the book in, in different professions. And that's really the core of the complementarian ideal. And then the other new laws of robotics, to my mind, sort of spring from that first one. Mm-hmm. If you take the first one really seriously, then, then the other ones that I write about come out of that. It sort of presupposes a certain type of job or a certain type of work. I mean, you emphasize the, the professions. 
these are jobs that have some very powerful kind of human meaning. And of course, you know, you can get meaning from lots and lots of different types of work. But look, there's a lot of work that's just stinks, right? I mean, I worked in retail. I remember when we had to do a sale, I had to go around with with a price gun and had to put labels and stickers on 60,000 pieces of furniture over the weekend. I mean, this was not anything that was ennobling. This was not like providing meaning. I worked in, when I was a kid, I dabbled in a factory where I was just moving piles of clothing around. So there's this whole other argument, which is, hey, if we can get rid of the satanic mills, like, let's do it. Let's just think of work as a cost and anything we can do to reduce the amount of work we need is is a good thing. And I think you're just as equally maybe worried or concerned about the simplicity of that argument as well. So do we have to really think about comparative advantage here? Where is the comparative advantage for the humans and where is the comparative advantage for the for the silicon-based computation? Totally agreed on that. That's a really good argument. And what it shows as well is the question of, of values, right, in mm-hmm. a lot of these debates. What experiences do we value and what do we not value? There was a book by Russ Muirhead called Just Work. In his book, he has a chapter or so praising the type of positions that you're describing, right? Well, we're at the very least for the waiters and waitresses and others at restaurants saying, well, this just seems like you're carrying food from one person to another. And But actually, if you really look mm-hmm. at the job and when the experience of the person in the job, there's something much richer to it. Well, if you decompose it, right? So the part where you're actually interacting with customers and providing them with a wonderful experience, that's great. But drying the, the dishware for like two hours, that stuff is a little tedious. First of all, I totally affirm what you're saying. And, I, and the book goes in that direction totally, right? The book is like saying difficult, dirty, dangerous work. I don't think many people would feel it would be a terrible social disruption if tomorrow the Roomba moved from cleaning the floor to cleaning the wall to cleaning everything, right? Now, there, there'll be a lot of cleaners out of work, and, and I deal with that later in the book about how to sort of give training, give education, give other opportunities to people that we put out of work in these ways. But you're right. I do not think there's something fundamental there. But I do try to keep my mind as open as possible to that because in early drafts of this book, like you might see in the acknowledgments of the book, like I presented the chapters in it, like all of, I really tried to make it my main project for five years and to present it wherever I could, you know, when I was traveling. And I would say at first, farming, like if only we could have robots do all the farming, that'd be great. And then we would say, wait a second. I think that actually, you know, I, I've been on a farm. I've, I've lived this life. I think that actually you need to create room in the modern economy for some farmers to be able to develop a tie with nature, understand it better. Wine farming particularly or wine cultivation, you know, is something where I certainly got some pushback on that. And so with those things, I, I think that there is the value question. But to come back to the, your original point, You're absolutely right. And I think that part of what the challenge of automation is going to be is making that divide, making the divide between the kind of work where we just say, okay, that's no longer a human job, you know, like elevator operator. It was remarkable because I once went to a hotel in Tokyo, Hotel Osaka, that, you know, before it was rebuilt, that had an elevator operator. And this was part of its sort of charm, its performance of like 1950, sort of. The San Francisco Opera has one. Oh, they do. Yes. (laughs) And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is interesting particularly in Japan, which is supposed to be on the far edge of mm-hmm. robotics automation, but there was, there was a place for this. But then on the other side, I thought to myself, but I'm glad that there wasn't a union of elevator mm-hmm. button pushers who derailed in a Luddite fashion robotics. And I worry sometimes when I see the sort of contemporary Luddites. I mean, some scholars have actually like taken on Luddite as a positive thing. And I worry that that's going too far, you know, because there, there's certainly there's a need for the social surplus mm-hmm. that's created 
when you don't have to pay a subsistence wage to the elevator button pusher and you'd use that money goes to wherever. Hopefully some goes to taxes, some goes to shareholders, some goes to other investment, et cetera. But making that divide is critical. I'm, I'm glad you bring it up. What I like about this distinction is that a lot of people who are concerned about people losing their jobs, they're thinking about the job simply as a income stream, right? And if it is an income stream, then, well, UBI can basically deal with that, right? If that's all somebody needs is an income stream. But I think you're, you're highlighting that work is meaningful, or at least some work can be meaningful. And if that's removed from our existence, it could potentially have some non-pecuniary costs that we haven't really factored into the cost benefit. Oh, yeah. And I think that goes for both the worker and for society at large. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine a world where we just sort of stipulated as a society, here's what you need to know to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. And we programmed that all into a computer, gamified it, and said, Mm -hmm. kids, you're going to interact with this super teacher from grade one through grade 12. And that's it. We just saved a ton of money by firing all the teachers and there's no educational system. And certainly post-COVID, we could see how that could work, right? But I think so much we lost there, right? And a few things to put forward. One would be, there is, I think, an intrinsically valuable social role of the teacher. And of course, I guess I'm talking my own book as a professor, but I think that, you know, even if you wiped out the professors, teachers, elementary school teachers, et cetera, that's a role that gives a lot of people meaning and value and allows them to like connect with kids, be a role model for them, give their own views on what the substantive material should be taught, et cetera. That's another thing I think a lot about is a law professor is like substantively, there are hundreds of different administrative law courses in this country, right? And I think that's a good thing. I think it's actually a good, it's a different course in Brooklyn as opposed to Harvard, as opposed to Florida State or wherever you teach it. It is a different course because different people bring different ideas, values, experiences to it. So that kind of democratizes knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think you can make a similar case about this sort of both intrinsically important role to the laborer and to the person who's working and to the democratization aspects of it that make the society, I think, better, more resilient, more diverse, rather than the type of movement that I I would see in a lot of automation right now. But it seems like part of that argument is not really about automation per se. It's not about who's making the decision. Is it a human or is it a robot? It seems like a lot of that discussion is really all about the scope of discretion, right? So rules versus discretion. Because if if you're a human and you're robotically executing a series of rules that were handed down to you by some other human, that would presumably be just as unfulfilling <laughs> potentially as, as a role where you had more discretion. But what is the optimal amount of discretion? You, you talk about doctors and teachers and journalists, and well, you could have had lawyers in there. You, you didn't have a chapter on lawyers, but they would be a member of, of a profession. And one of the reasons why we esteem these professions is because we think that these are roles that require good judgment. And so we give them a lot of discretion, but then we hope that they use that discretion wisely. But if I go into a doctor with a kidney ailment, diversity of (laughs) approaches means that some approaches are better than others. Like, I don't want the rogue doctor who thinks that bleeding me is going to somehow cure my cancer, right? I want the doctor who's going to be required to use best practices to the extent that we know what they are. And, And so it would seem like using an algorithm not only for diagnosis and for treatment plan design, would almost always be better than just allowing every random doctor in the country to decide what they think is best. How do we balance the need for, let's go to the lawyer case. 
we know that the way in which the law evolves is that there's going to be some judge somewhere that's going to do something that's a little bit different, and that innovation will ultimately diffuse to the whole system. So we want to give judges some discretion. But, you know, we don't want a judge saying, you stole a pack of gum, I'm going to lock you up for life, right? We want to have some consistency and have a system which harmonizes across all judges. How do we determine what the optimal amount of of discretion. Is this something which varies over time based on how much we know? Does AI help us to kind of learn faster so that it's going to lead to more homogeneity and that's a good thing? Great set of questions. And let me just start with the first thing you mentioned about there not being a lawyer chapter. There was in in an early draft of the book, but I actually broke it out and made it its own article called A Rule of Persons, Not Machines, sort of playing off a rule of law, not of men, (laughs) because I thought it was a really interesting Parallel, and I, so that's that's out there if anyone wants to see my take on, on law as a profession, because I've thought a lot about it. But it turned out it was very hard for me as a lawyer to try to communicate it to a wider audience, which is what the book was for, you know? So that was the difficulty there. With respect to evidence-based medicine and the scope of permissible variation medical practice, it's a great question, you know, and that's at the core of like a lot of malpractice claims, right? Many times a doctor will do something, poor result, and then the patient sues over malpractice, And the idea becomes, is that the standard of care? And within the standard of care, there can be what's called a respectable minority, right? Some smaller group of doctors that does something that's not what the average doctor does, but it's still a smaller, respectable minority that has its own views. And I think that law has wrestled with that. And in that way, in considering what would be the ultimate good scope of discretion, what we could do is those who are behind evidence-based medicine or the AI that's going to be used in promoting better medical treatment in in the future really has to look to those sorts of standards and think, well, what is the permissible zone of of discretion? Another way in which the law has dealt with this is in the Affordable Care Act, there's certain provisions for preference-sensitive care. So, for example, if someone has a backache, they're very much encouraged by these provisions of the ACA, the doctor, to say to that person, look, as part of my informed consent to treat you, I want you to know that there's a lot of ways you could go here, right? You could go for exercise, That might be slow and arduous, but ultimately more effective than a surgery. You might do nothing at all, watchful waiting. And to give people a sense in that way. But the thing that I think is really important about this, though, is that it often really takes the human touch to sort of be in the room with the patient to understand, like, what type of person are they? What are their highest goals? What are their their really important values? And what do they really want to get out of the situation, right? You're right to say, like, if someone has a burst appendix or something like that. We don't want to sit them down and be like, well, there's many different, multiple, you know, whatever. It's like, get it out, you know? (laughs) So that's that's the way, right? But I think that the question a lot of times becomes, how do you bring to this scenario insight and statistical power and recognition of patterns from AI and machine learning, but not to aspire to say, just knock out the professional altogether. My worry is that, you know, the cost-cutting pressure in many of these areas is so high that we're going to see this pressure to repeatedly get rid of the professional or make people jump through a hundred hoops that are automated like a phone tree before they get to the professional, right? So the game becomes then sort of, well, how do I present my symptoms so I can finally get to a doctor? I'm very worried about that sort of a future, and I hope that we can try to figure out ways that we are using the AI to complement people within an acceptable range. The other thing I should say is that, like, if you look at drug-drug interaction software, that's another really good example where the computing system can be much better than the human. It can have a million different drug-drug interactions in its database that it can tell the doctor, hey, don't prescribe 
Zantac with Prozac or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, you don't want that thing like doing the actual prescribing because there's a lot of other sort of things that you want it to check the doctor, I think, but not to replace the doctor as a prescriber. Well, so when you talk about the role of the human in the medical context, I think a lot of people, when they talk about the role of the human, they're thinking about the human touch, right? And how the patient wants to have this human who's sort of the the face of the procedure, right? The face of the clinical experience. But you're talking about it more as having the human in a place where they can essentially pick up information that would not otherwise be picked up or add into the decision-making some element or context which would be missed out by the algorithm. Because if it was just about the human touch, then you could hire an actor, right? I like to joke that the guy that you meet at the front of the plane when you board who is wearing the funny hat is actually an actor because the plane is flown by software. And you'd rather have an actor who can't screw with the software, right, than have an actual pilot who might be tempted to uh, override the algorithm. And of course, that if that were true, that all we wanted was like a human for, for empathy purposes, it would have radically different implications. I mean, to go back to your other book on the black box, I remember when I got my first mortgage, I was teaching it at Duke. And I remember I went into the, the banker's office and I, I put on a suit because I was like thinking, even though I taught finance, I was thinking this is down South. So who knows, maybe this little bank is going to size me up and try to make sure I'm like a church going guy and a taxpayer or whatever. I looked the part, but of course, all he was doing was just checking the the approvals from GE Capital's algorithm back up in Connecticut or whatever. And then he was just there for entertainment purposes. In a sense, a lot of people would argue, well, that's that's better. Because if you allow that guy in the office to evaluate what he sees, he's probably just going to base it on the race of the person, even though he knows he's not supposed to and he thinks he's not doing it. You know, he could be allowing all sorts of irrelevant characteristics into the decision. So the argument that the AI people will make is that this is a great way to eliminate the human factor is not a feature, but a bug. We want to kind of get rid of it. How do we keep the human in, in the loop, but make sure that it's just the good human stuff that's being added to the mix and not the biases and the, the other things that we don't want? It's a very good way of framing the question is to say that like, hey, wait a second, weren't the algorithm supposed to liberate us from these forms of human bias? And you see it in some of the debate among those who seem really committed to algorithms. Mm -hmm. And I think that the behavioral economics crew is drifting in that direction now. When I look at the sort of pro-algorithm stuff from Thaler, Sunstein, Mullenathan, it seems like there's a, there's a lot of emphasis on human irrationality. And then on the other side, you have people like Gerd Gigerenzer and this recent book called Framers by uh, Kenneth Kukier and Victor Meyer Schoenberger and, and I think a third author, where they're saying, well, wait a second, you know, there's a lot of really essential human attributes here. Your question was, you know, how do you keep the good human discretion without sort of also bringing in all these forms of hidden bias, implicit bias that may never even be articulated or maybe held secretly in an evil person's heart? You know, they may be discriminatory, but just say, well, I'm going to discriminate and not tell anyone or be implicit bias where they're not meaning it at all, but they still are biased in some ways. So a couple of answers to that. I think one is that just as with the example with the drug-drug interactions, you can have an example, a situation where statistical analysis comes after the fact mm -hmm. with respect to how these people are performing. And there was recently, I think, an article by Chad Topaz about judges, sort of identifying judges who seem to be wildly disproportionate in how many in over 
overly harshly penalizing black as opposed to white defendants. Right? So you bring that in, that becomes a bit of a check on people. Lots of, I think, statistical analysis, the judiciary could do that as well. Another example that could happen here, so that's where, where we're getting at the bias. I do think that the question of empathy, as you framed it earlier, is a little bit more beyond what the actor is doing when you're talking mm -hmm. about legal contexts or even judging contexts in general. Because I think what's really crucial about it is the role reversibility. Let's say there's a judge who sentences a person to 10 years in jail. The judge actually knows what it's like as a human to be confined, to not, they can imagine quite empathetically what that means. I'm not saying I'll go do this. Yeah, I mean, it might be a good idea to actually make a judge spend a few days in prison as a condition of employment, and then that might heighten the empathic capacity. That's a brilliant idea. That would be a very good law review article, actually, because to write that up, because it is true. I mean, we saw the recent, a few years ago, there were legislators who would spend a week trying to live on the supplemental nutritional allowance program, the old food stamp program, you know, and they'd say, I, I can't eat on $11 a day. I guess other people find a way, but like, I can't get something that will get me through the day. And I think that's actually a really good idea. And I think that would further legitimize the human role, right? To have that idea of empathy. I think ideally, you know, if you have a doctor with a good bedside manner, they can actually put that in, in mind as well. But your points about like the credit score in Europe, there's something really interesting happening in a, in a few little cases. And I'm not saying this is going to revolutionize credit scoring in Europe, but there are people pushing in this direction where somebody complained about being very negatively scored by a credit scoring algorithm. And they said, I deserve my right to like give my side of the story. And the Finnish Data Protection Authority actually said, yeah, you do. I kind of like that. You spoke about your, your mortgage experience, you know, at Duke. And, and my experience of this, this is a bizarre story. After my first year of law school, I went to Peru for the summer, very unusual summer. I didn't get my mail and I didn't get this credit card bill I thought I'd paid. It mm -hmm. wasn't paid 90 days overdue, just tanks my credit score for years, right? And I called them and I said, look, I was in Peru. It was like $40. This is ridiculous. But it was like, because I had so little credit history coming out of law school and I had a lot of debt from law school, blew it up for like several years. And to me, I just thought to myself, this is a bizarre process, right? And, and to me, that was the germ of black box society was the sense of like injustice at that, compounded by my later experiences and, and later study of search engines and finance generally. And I think there's something about that sort of human in the loop where you have at least somebody that you can appeal to who has to explain it to somebody and who could be hu held humanly accountable. You know, you can go after that person in some way or another, you know, say like, hey, should we remove that person from the bench if they are completely oblivious to what you're saying or th those sorts of things? Whereas like a computer that's making that decision doesn't care. If you say, well, let's remove computer number 47 from the, the FICO scoring center, you know, the computer doesn't care. It doesn't have a intentionality or consciousness or anything. So I think that's where I'm, I'm sort of coming from on, on that sort of empathy level. To some extent, though, it's kind of a prior that we have, right? That the humans are more empathic than the algorithms. But it's a prior. It's not tautologically true, right? At least more vulnerable. Because, like, imagine if you have a computer that harms you. There's no way to really punish it in a way that could be commensurate with the harm you suffered, right? If a computer breaks my leg, yeah. I can, like, hack at its CPU, it's not going to feel very bad, right? It's not going to feel anything. Yeah. That's part of the issue here, yeah. I just think there's a remarkably large number of unempathetic humans. But I think you're raising a bigger point because there's who's making the decision and then there's the nature of the decision. And I think what you're saying is that in some cases, algorithmic decision-making can accelerate some of the 
bad aspects of decision making. So, you know, in economics, in agency theory, we talk about having incomplete KPIs or incomplete metrics, and we reward based on those incomplete metrics. Those metrics are, are not subtle enough to capture all the different things that we're interested in. And they can essentially go off the rails, right? Just like, you know, a rat hitting a lever to get cocaine or whatever. You could have a, an investment bank that just says, eat what you kill, maximize your P&L, and, and then you have the financial crisis. So humans can design incentives for other humans that are equally faulty. But I guess part of the point is that with humans, there's a lot of noise, and, and the noise kind of serves as a bit of a, a break on the worst tendencies of, of these ill-conceived rules. Yeah, I think that's right. And it reminds me of the something that I quote in the, in the robots book by Paul Scharr, this military theorist who says that the, mm. the killer robot can make a million mistakes a second, right? <laughs> and that's what we worry yeah. about. That's a yeah. very worrisome future. What's fascinating to me too is that a lot of these folks extrapolate their concerns from finance, from, you know, night capital, that sort of like nightmare of night capital or like the the flash crash of 2.36 p.m. On, on some day in 2010. It is interesting, like finance seems somewhat resilient to that. Like it seems like we don't see continual flash crashes. I guess there's a small number of people that are still sort of complaining about this stuff, but it doesn't seem to really disrupt the markets that much. But I do think when like human lives are at stake, it can and, and would if you had that sort of incredibly rapid decision, algorithmic decision-making uh, taking over. A lot of the points you're making are, are process-based. I mean, it's about let's drill into the process and figure out how we can put some checks and balances in place that will correspond to an optimization function that's different from the one we typically think of, right? So whether it's Facebook taking down a post or a bank refusing you a loan, right? I think people want to have an opportunity to figure out, you know, why did that happen, right? So whether it's a human or a robot that's making that decision, we want there to be an opportunity maybe to scrutinize that rule and maybe help identify flaws in the rule. So wouldn't the entities that are executing on these rules, wouldn't they welcome feedback on the rules? Wouldn't they want to make their rules sufficiently transparent that they would get feedback when they're doing something wrong? I mean, after all, if I'm a bank and I'm refusing a loan to somebody who is perfectly creditworthy because of an ill-conceived credit scoring model that makes mistakes, and someone comes along and alerts me to that, right? Or if a convicted felon appeals, and as a result, we discover that there's a corrupt cop who's falsifying evidence. Like, wouldn't we as owners of that system want to essentially have these private DAs out there policing our, our systems? That certainly should happen. And I think that there's a lot of private sector interest in things like the Responsible AI Foundation that is trying to develop certification marks for quality AI and other entities that, you know, are saying, hey, let's do something that's like the ISO, you know, like standards for AI that would help us identify those things. The worry I have, on the other hand, is that, you know, there's this uh, wonderful book by Joel Waldfogel called The Tyranny of the Market. And a lot of the book is about the 5 or 10 or 15% of the market that's just not that profitable to serve. It's just like they're just kind of thrown to the side or something. And, and you know, as someone who has long struggled to find good shoes, as a very, very tall person with a, a very unusually sized feet, this is a problem, you know, that I, I am familiar with. And, and he, he has all sorts of good examples in the radio market and others in his book. So I think that's right. The larger point that you're arguing here, though, is I think a real challenge to people like me who are critics of automation, which is that we often hear, I once did a criticism of will writing software, software that was designed to write person's last will and testament. 
And when I would present it, then the people who did trust in the state's law, who believed in this, in automating trust in the state, said, great, thank you for your service, your criticism. In version 2.0, we will incorporate that and make it better. You know, and, and so so I, I think that's true. But what that raises, I think, is a whole other issue of like, where are the benefits of this stuff coming from and going to, right? I was never paid for my critique of their system. It was worked into there. They could, I don't know if they ultimately did work it in, but it did get worked in eventually. And that was the concern I have about books like Bernie Olson and McAfee's or McAfee and Bernie Olson's uh, Machine Platform Crowd is that, you know, they're saying, well, we have this machine, but if you have a platform that brings in the crowd to critique it, you can consistently continually make the machine better, et cetera. And then I think that raises some questions, first of distributive justice, second, who's manipulating the machine, right? Sometimes the crowd can get very quite manipulative and manipulate the machine in a way that's not socially valuable. But in general, I, I think you're right to point out that ideally it's in the owners of these systems' interest to invite criticism and to invite feedback and to get people involved in improving them. And in a way, that could be a good business strategy, right? If you get more people, more and more people invested in improving what you're doing, then you know you have this sort of group that becomes a community that can also be really enjoying and being committed to or investing in some way in, in, in one's own services. So, yeah. Well, except for the fact that, as you point out in the black box society, that there's a cost to transparency, right? Which is, first of all, most of these algorithms, you have no IP around them. And so if... Google shares its algorithm, then potentially a competitor could come in and provide results that are just as good. But I guess the other concern is that they want to keep it opaque so people can't game it, right? If you, once you figure out how to game it, then you've got a cat and mouse, you know, they have to go back and, and alter it and so forth, particularly in the area of policing and warfare. And you, you had a whole chapter on that, which I found very interesting. If we made public the algorithm that we use to identify where terrorists are and you know how we target them with drones and so forth, well, they would presumably figure out a way to, to get around it. It's true. And that was one of the hardest chapters to write. Because in my mind, what I think is happening now is that if you have good enough technology, war becomes occupation, becomes policing. And when we think about policing, we think, well, you know, someone who's a police officer they have to abide by very clearly defined rules. We have to know exactly what they can look at, what they can't look at. The whole Fourth Amendment doctrine is all about this stuff, about what's a search and seizure, what's not, what's appropriate, what's not. Recently, we had the whole Baltimore spy plane litigation that was on this topic. The problem becomes that if war becomes like policing, then all of a sudden, all of the things you've got to sort of give away with respect to policing, you can't really run a war very well <laughs> if you've given away all those things. And then you've, your whole strategy is laid out for the opposition to see the other irony, of course, you know, is I try to write these books with an eye to like making them of lasting relevance. But the one thing I, I find now really ironic is that what I was concerned about in chapter six of New Laws of Robotics about the military was incredibly over-dominating military force by the U.S. and China, right? And of course, now we see the Afghanistan meltdown happening. And it just seems like, oh, well, wait a second. We may be vastly overestimating what technology is buying the world's most advanced military right now. And that's another theme that I maybe I would have hit a little bit harder had I written it in 2021 as opposed to over, over the past six years up to 2020, would be that we often overestimate what AI can do and certainly and what tech can do. And certainly the I think the U.S. military is finding that out right now with respect to this really surprising route by the Taliban of the, the forces that the U.S. had trained. Well, I think one of the other things that comes up is, do people feel a greater sense of injustice if they're on the negative side of a decision made by 
automation as opposed to by a human, right? I mean, I'd be just as pissed if a human stabbed me as if a robot like came over and hit me. I'd be just as upset being dead in both cases. But there seems to be this idea that human frailty is more more acceptable. If a human veers off the road and hits you with their car, the Tesla is going to have to be like 10 times safer before people are, are comfortable with it. When we hear about people who are denied parole or whatever by an algorithm, it kind of upsets us in a way that it doesn't upset us when we find out that a human who we think is doing a their best and was given enough time to the case and thought it through, and then they still wind up making the wrong decision. We're kind of more okay with that. Is that a transient thing? I mean, I remember I thinking back to when uh, Coase wrote the whole article about the trains and when the trains would go by and cause the hayricks to catch fire, everybody was really upset. And then after trains became more common and people started appreciating the benefits of trains, the common law changed and said, okay, fine, you know, just Put your hayrick far away from the trains, right? Do you think that when people get more accustomed to automated decision-making that they'll adjust their sensitivity to it? That's a terrific set of connections. And I think what's fascinating also about the coast, mentioning coasts, is how the University of Chicago has, since the 1930s and 40s and onwards, adapted to promoting a very pro-technology narrative about how people get used to technology, now there's a group there promoting personalized law, saying that law could be personalized to individuals by big data profiling of every individual to think of the optimal set of laws to apply to them, et cetera. Like personalized medicine, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but seeing those intellectual continuities, I think are really interesting. I am a little worried about the idea about the car. The analogy between the Tesla and the train is a really fascinating one. And I do agree with you that like we shouldn't be forcing it to be 10 times better than a human, right? If you could sort of develop that, but boy, we're going to have to revolutionize our theories of legal liability if we if we do this, right? We're going to have to essentially have a something out there where you have these sort of robotic cars. Robotic negligence, right? Yeah. I've written a bit in this. After the book came out, I did a piece that was on FDA-regulated software, sort of like the software you'd see in some apps that would be advising doctors, things like that. But there is an interesting counterview to mine a guy named Ryan Abbott has a very interesting series of works in a book called The Reasonable Robot, I think, that's sort of about how his view is we shouldn't discriminate between the robot and the person, right? If persons are, treat the robot doing a certain task as you would treat a person doing the task. If the robot does something that deserves a patent, give it a patent. If the robot does something that deserves to be fined, fine, et cetera. So that is sort of the one view. But it is funny with the Tesla. The question to me that becomes really the hardest question with it is, or the just self-driving in general is it's kind of an experiment, right? And can you get us communities of people that are up for the experiment in the U.S.? That's kind of how I think we're thinking of it. My bet is that East Asia, Japan, Taiwan, China, Vietnam, I bet that one of those countries isn't going to get self-driving cars way before the U.S. or Europe because to me, it's their view is that it's more a problem of social coordination. I think our view seems to be that it's a problem of experimentation with cutting-edge technology among people who consent. We're going to have a hard time finding a group, a community of people to consent. Like, I went to a conference on autonomous vehicles in Taipei a few years ago, and you know, it seems to me that, that what I was hearing from many of the presenters there, admittedly through a translator, but what I was hearing was that it was seen as more of a social project that would be run in, say, some somewhat more of a top-down way involving things like 
let's have a separate lane on the highway for these cars. Let's develop the infrastructure to guide them along, et cetera. And I have a sense that's going to be the the answer, the socio-technical answer, as opposed to the technical answer. Yeah, I remember when people first started talking about autonomous driving 20, 30 years ago, I worked from the assumption that you had to go from 0% to 100% automated cars because they needed to be able to talk to each other and they need to talk to the infrastructure. And you know, one of the reasons why it's taken so long is because we're, we're trying to make sure that they can coexist with the humans. And so you could bypass that coexistence with dedicated lanes and ring-fenced areas, then I think it would solve yeah. a lot of problems. But you're right. In the U.S., that's a lot harder to do because you don't have somebody who's going to just impose this um, from above. The takings doctrine is incredibly powerful here, right? I mean, we just had a case in this for the past Supreme Court term that said that for California to allow, I think California was the state, to allow a union organizer to go on to the farmer's fields to try to tell the migrant workers they could join a union, that that was a taking of their land to say that they could go on. You know, so it's like, I worry about, you know, it's always the future direction of conservatism because to me, there used to be what struck me as a much more bolder pro-business wing of the Republican Party that might have like this vision for like, hey, we're going to do autonomous cars, we're going to do it right, and it may take crack a few eggs to make this omelet, but we're going to do it. But instead, what's happening is this sort of like individual right, sort of like, well, it's just my rights, you know, not to wear a mask, not to get a vaccine, not to let people on the land. And then I'm like, whoa, that's really worrisome because it's hard to compete in the global economy if your whole idea is that like nobody can be told what to do. And so that really worries me. I'm sorry to wax political and poetic here a bit, but I, I do think when we think about the future of like advances in robotics and AI, a lot's going to depend on sort of like social coordination that I don't know the U.S. is is up for right now. And I, I worry about that. Well, I mean, that takes us to fake news, right? You have a whole chapter on journalism as a profession, and this is a theme I'm very interested in. I mean, I'm interested in kind of the collapse of professionalism in, in general as an organizing principle. And certainly in journalism, we've seen the disintegration of the idea of journalistic professionalism. I think I see it as kind of an industrial organization problem. I see it as, you know, when you have low barriers to entry into the profession, then, I mean, it's not really technically a profession. It's kind of an informal profession without formal barriers to entry. It never had formal barriers to entry, but, you know, you had to own this big printing press or economies of scale. And now there's like zero barriers to entry. And so so anybody can spin up an automated news generator, right? And this has some profound consequences. It really does. And and I mean, to me... One of the reframings I was trying to do with this book, and I, and I think it's only worth like writing a book if, if you're really trying to challenge important and harmful conventional wisdom, or if you can sort of really creatively reframe things for someone. And I, I try to do, do that in various ways in the book, but the part of it on journalism and the media to me is, the, is a reframing. And the reframing that I try to do is to say, okay, everyone, when they think about AI, they're looking for the self-driving car. They're looking for the Jetsons <laughs> sort of scenario. And it's like, don't look there, look to high-frequency trading and finance and look to your newsfeed, right? Because that's where you've got total automation. I mean, you don't have almost anybody at Facebook saying directly, hey, I want to make sure that Frank gets to see this article that's about the latest in the Chinese real estate market. No, it's that actually it turns out that there's some automation, some algorithm that's going to up that in my newsfeed or, or downplay other things. And similar with the Twitter algorithmic feed or other things like that and YouTube algorithms. And to me, that's really fascinating and worrisome because if you have this selection mechanism, it really doesn't run on that much of a logic other than profit. 
And what can be profitable can be immensely trivializing, socially destructive, et cetera. Now, of course, I'm not romanticizing the old old news, right? Of course, local news for decades has been just a wasteland of if it bleeds, it leads, terrible stories, et cetera. The local newspapers, though, I do worry about because at least they were often trying to figure out, like, what's the city council doing or what's going on here? And I find that even as someone in Brooklyn, in the middle of, like, the media epicenter, you know, for a lot of the U.S., I can't figure out like what's going on in Brooklyn or I can't what's going on, you know, on the street. Like what's that building they're putting up? Why is this part of the park been closed for repairs for months? Like who decided that? Why did they decide it? What's going on? And to me, it's really worrisome to see that. And I think part of it is, is exactly this issue where if we just default into a world where, well, what is it of interest to me is just what happens to be part of this like Frankenstein's monster algorithm between algorithmic profit maximization and content moderation by totally underpaid, deprofessionalized individuals that are often just totally out of the context of what they're moderating. That's bad. And I think that a lot of that has contributed to some of the forms of social disorder, disorientation, disinformation that we're seeing now. I think that it's really worrisome. And I can I prove it with a social, scientific, empirical proof? No. But I try to give you sort of a sense in the book that there's a lot of contribution of this algorithmic shift to a lot of problems we're seeing now. I was wondering if you can decompose. So, you know, there's two aspects to it. One is the low barriers to entry. Second is the automating of the newsfeed. So even if we didn't automate the newsfeed, I mean, you still had profit maximizing folks at like BuzzFeed, humanly curating, oh, I think people are going to be interested in this ridiculous thing or this addictive thing. I kind of see it as the difference between heroin and fentanyl. Fentanyl's bad, but you know, so was heroin. Old school heroin, we had that back in the 60s, and you know, it wasn't that good for us back then. So that you could say that the real problem is the human appetite for opiates, but the harm that you can do with this is there's sort of like a there's some grit in the system because the fentanyl is just taking it and putting it on. Can I say I'm putting on steroids or is that like a mixed metaphor? <laughs> I, I like the mixed metaphor. I think it's good. <laughs> I'm really interested in the sort of like question of like alteration of human nature via drugs as well. That was something I was writing about back in the 2000s when I was doing more bioethics stuff because I just part of my general like law and technology regulation. And I thought it was an interesting newish problem at the time. But I think you're right to say that like there was a pre-existing problem that got turned up to 11 that got amplified. And that to me is one of the critical steps toward actually solving the problem is trying to recognize that what social media companies are doing, let's not just assume that it's all free speech, that it's all sort of some communicative function that should be completely unregulated, but rather it's like amplification. It's the spread. It's the acceleration and amplification of say disinformation, misinformation, these other messages that reminds me of, say, time, place, and manner restrictions on speech. So, I mean, a lot of what what keeps us from doing anything about this whole scenario is that we have such a strong First Amendment tradition in the U.S. But if we also think about, well, we don't allow there to be a parade on the highway every day, right? That would be just massively disruptive. And similarly, we can find ways, I think, of regulating towards a better future here that would at least take out some of the worst, most baseless most inflammatory stuff out of the system. I would hope for that. And even if we can't do it, hopefully other countries can do it. But I do think that you're, you're right to point that out, to say, yeah, it's not as if everything was perfect before. I'm not nostalgic for the world of my childhood, which was ABC, CBS, NBC, right? It was like Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings. <laughs> they were your anchormen. They gave you the news each night. 
we had a common sense of reality, et cetera. I don't think we can go back to that. I don't think we necessarily would want to go back to that. But we can at least keep, I think, try to hedge in the worst aspects of the current system. But you also point out that there are still so many things that humans can do, whether it's, say, identifying pornography or fake news, that we're still kind of at the level of the expert systems 20 years ago. So remember when they tried to bring in expert systems to replace doctors, you know, we had disastrous results. And right now, you know, if you try to use AI to identify hate speech, doesn't do a great job and you want to bring in some humans. Is this just like growing pains? I mean, if we are expecting companies like Facebook to regulate speech at scale, is there any other way that they could do it? They'd have to have, would have to have half the world policing the speech of the other half, right? I mean, because <laughs> if the bots can generate it, but it needs a human to identify it, this is going to be the biggest employment category going forward, right? Well, I would definitely stop the bots from generating it. I would, I would really try to crack down on them. And I, I have in the book, you know, law that they have to identify themselves. That takes us to the, the other law about the other idea of, well, first of all, you shouldn't counterfeit humanity. And yeah. then the other one, which was that you always should know who the owner is, right? So that you yeah. can impose liability. And the owner needs to be, presumably, they can't be like super judgment-proof in all, in all cases, right? There has to be some, if there's no bundle of assets you can go after, then there's no disincentive to engage in bad behavior, right? That's right. The great kind of provocative question in the book, which was, should Microsoft be liable for the ransom notes that people write in Microsoft Word? Where would the liability end? If I write fantastic code that helps companies to make great decisions, and then they roll it out and start executing on it, where should we think about the responsibility lying we have to disclose all the way on down because most code is written on top of other code. How do we think about assigning liability and disclosure? The responsibility question is really interesting. In that Microsoft example, I wanted to say that like, there are certain things out there where we don't want to get the provider of the technology in trouble, right? I mean, for example, I think we all have a general intuition that if someone uses the phone to call and call phone in a bomb threat, we're not going to get the phone company in trouble for that. And similarly with Microsoft Word, we're not going to get them in trouble for that. Now, what is kind of interesting, though, is that, so that's our first initial tort law intuition. You also, though, have things like CALEA, the Computer Assisted Law Enforcement Act, right? I think from 1994 or so, that put certain obligations on telecom providers. And I have to admit, I'm really at the edge of my knowledge here. I don't know if it covers it all, like knowing where, where a bomb threat came from or whatever that might be. But certainly there are lots of, since then, there's been lots of obligations being put on those providers. One last question I have for you, which is literature in your books. And I, I love this. Martha Nussbaum and others have said that literature can tell you more about people than social sciences sometimes. And it can be a source of, of empathy. To my knowledge, robots can't read literature. <laughs> so, <laughs> we haven't figured out how to do machine-readable literature yet in a meaningful way. This seemed to highlight your humanity. It really helped illustrate kind of your, your perspective. How has literature played a role in your life? I will say that to me, what it does is it helps me to understand the lives of people that are really different from me. And I don't think that I've completely learned everything about <laughs> other people in other times and places through literature, but it has at least given me a sense of what it is like and to give that sort of like internal perspective and also a sense of the limits of one's ability to comprehend and understand others' lives. That's part of it. I think that there's so much more to be said, though, I think about literature. I think that there's especially poetry and novels giving one a sense of that metacognition about one's own internal cognition when you compare it to the internal cognition as depicted by a really good poet or 
author or a novelist. It's a couple of things that I actually have in a current draft, but not in the book, but I would recommend for this. Rachel Cusk's novel, Outline, which I think is just a beautifully written book and really gives a sense of this metacognition. Hari Kunzru's Red Pill, which I think is another book which is about the struggles of someone trying to understand a world so quickly changed by technology and trying to make a case about a vision of the world to people that really are radically different than him and failing, but in that process of failing, understanding something much, much deeper. So those would be a couple of just things I get out of literature, but I mean, so much more to talk there. And certainly I hope we can have a follow-up conversation on that or more. Thanks so much, Craig. See you again. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.